Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of our Making Sense of podcast. Um, today we're looking at making sense of our responses to trauma. Um, we're in a bit of a kind of trauma week. We did a presentation for the University of the Arts London last week where we were looking at um, queer identity particularly and healing from associated trauma. Um, we're also doing our day on trauma on our psychology of change course tomorrow. Um, and I think there was just something about, you know, connecting to the topic of, of trauma and, you know, this ongoing situation with COVID and trying to present a model that helps us to, um, I guess, essentially take care of ourselves and, and essentially um, take care of our well-being during what you know continues to be a really really tough time but I think kind of framing it within the perspective of trauma can be really helpful um, and before we go into that I want to just say who's here so we have Bex, Antonia, Liz, Heather and Tonya. You want to say hi? Hello. Hello everyone. So um, wanted to say that during this podcast, we're going to be taking a bit of a journey into physiology and some biology, which means that there's going to be a few words which might be new and they might also be a bit confusing or a bit intimidating. So just bear with us. Um, have a look at the handout. It's going to be really useful for you to see the handout at the same time or maybe before you listen to this podcast. Um, if not, I mean, I think, you know, you'll, you'll be able to grasp it. It's, the, it's not important to, to remember the words, but just to understand the reasons we're trying to present these, these concepts um, to you. Um, I guess what I wanted to just also say before we start this is saying that, like I said, framing this within the perspective of COVID, I think it's really important to understand that how we're affected by COVID can and is very likely to be affected by our past experiences of trauma. So a really kind of classic example is if you, something really serious happened when you were a child and maybe one of your parent, parents died or divorced and you grew up with this strong sense of abandonment, you know, you might feel abandoned um, quite strongly by the things you're losing or maybe, you know, maybe people around you have died and are triggering this previous response. So I just wanted you to kind of like connect this idea that, it's, that how we're um, experiencing COVID now can very much be affected by a past experience of trauma. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it's almost um, could be a lot more scary and terrifying kind of like having a pandemic if you have had a past history of trauma, then if not, I think that's kind of also what you were saying. Yeah, and just kind of like helping to, to make sense of why we might be responding to COVID in a particular way, because, you know, tra trauma is a bit like a fingerprint, like we all have our own individual relationship to it, experiences of it, and so we're all going to be affected differently by it. So. Hopefully by the end of this podcast, you'll have a better understanding of maybe why you're responding in certain things or your body's responding in certain ways. Um, so that's the aim. Um, and a good place, a really good place to start, I think, is to look at or to ask you, what is your understanding of trauma without thinking of it, about it too much? Well, I suppose it can be physiological and mental. Um, so you could have trauma in the body as like if you we're in a car crash and you were hurt for instance so that's trauma of the body um and then you have trauma of the mind which could be i suppose something um that you know has happened to you kind of i remember you said this bob and i hope i'm not gonna but it like hijacks the body's ability to like 
function. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember you training on PFC. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's like my favorite definition of trauma is that it's something that overwhelms and hijacks the body's ability to function. Um, so what would be our ordinary functioning gets disrupted. So one of the things, I mean, just using the car accident as an example, Again, just, you know, one thing I forgot to say earlier, actually, we're going to be talking about kind of body and mind, and let's try not to separate the two things because, you know, they are really connected. But if you have a car accident and you, uh, you know, it's quite traumatic and obviously happens out of the blue, um, you know, you're not going to be able to walk. You know, you might like break both of your legs and you might not be able to walk and kind of walking after that and healing from that is going to be quite, you know, a tough ongoing process. So that's a really kind of obvious way of looking at how something could, something traumatic can affect our way of functioning, our body's ability to function. Yeah, and then likewise, just kind of slightly contradicting what I just said. Um, if you are in a car accident and, you know, it's really obviously terrifying, you might be really scared to go back into a car again, you know? So what might be just a very everyday normal thing gets hijacked by your experience of trauma yeah i, I tend to think of it as, as kind of more more subtle than events like that as well uh, you know when you say trauma to me i think of things like poverty which isn't kind of you know isn't obviously hijacking your body's ability to respond but is there kind of low level and um impacting you in a way that is perhaps not that obvious so mm-hmm. You know, I think it's useful to think to to establish that trauma just isn't about big things or events. It actually can be, you know, environment and circumstance. And actually, it might not seem, you know, that that your body, you know, your body might be functioning seemingly quite not normally, but actually, you know, there there is an impact of of whatever's going on around. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to say as well at this point, and just the difference between chronic trauma and acute. So car accident, it's like one event, hopefully, and you know, it's something very kind of short, sharp, and it happens, whereas you can have something which is like an ongoing experience, which is traumatic. So poverty is a really good example of that. I would kind of say as well, you could go through something traumatic and at the time it wouldn't feel necessarily like that. You might feel like you're in control of it or, or you know, whatever. Um, and then have that kind of knock-on effect later that might be just there that you don't know until you kind of like have, feel, have these triggers, you know, for years or something that, that kind of compound those feelings that until you kind of look into it, you kind of don't realise why you kind of feel like, like that. Mm-hmm. Is that like PTSD? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I think it could be, but it could, you know, PTSD is, you know, the, the, in, in a sense, the big one, the big response to trauma. But I think it could also be those kind of like small things, like I, I guess that's what you're saying, that you don't really realise that the roots of those responses are in trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way we've kind of started to already talk about this, but I wanted to just kind of, um, you know, lay the groundwork a little bit. What are some examples of traumatic events? Because I think in the, you know, in the old days, you know, it's not actually that old, but I know when me and Liz started working, this was about 15, 16 years ago in the sector, trauma was quite often understood as A, being associated with like war and, you know, war veterans and people getting PTSD and being in kind of really horrific, like violent war zones, um, but was also quite often connected to very medical trauma. So I actually had a car accident myself was in the trauma ward and it was, you know, it's very medicalized. It's a very kind of like something serious has happened to your body. 
Um, but I think the, the understanding of trauma has really changed since then. So I guess, you know, chuck out some examples of different types of trauma. 9-11 was definitely a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And at the other, other end of the scale, a pet dying. Mm -hmm. Pet dying and 9-11. Yeah. There's a range. Uh, I think for a lot of people as well, things like parents splitting up and divorcing. And because it's so commonplace, people don't see it as traumatic. But I think it's something like parents splitting up or divorcing mm -hmm. and feel very dramatic. Mm -hmm. Bullying in school, if you've been badly bullied through high school, it can have like a real lasting effect on you. Totally, yeah. I mean, like I have a long list of all these horrific things that can happen to people, you know, obviously you know, for women, rape and, and sexual um, assault is, is a massive thing. Mm -hmm. It gets a bit people, places, things, doesn't it? Because actually, you know, trauma is in the eye of the holder. Um, and so people can, um, you know, experience something that, that you know, might be the, the, the death of a guinea pig that might, you know, to other people might seem very minimal, but um, to the person whose guinea pig has died might feel really traumatic. So it is a bit, you know, it's so kind of, it can be anything. And if you don't, if you don't feel safe, if you are not in a situation where you feel emotionally supported, then you will find things traumatic. I'm just thinking also of things like, you know, moving house lots and going to lots of different schools and things like that. Now, there'll be, you know, some people that will be fine. They'll, you know, they'll be able to manage it, but some people won't. So it, it, it when you, when we talk about what is trauma, it's so broad, it, it kind of becomes slightly meaningless actually because it's whatever is traumatic to that person and do you know what what impacts that person's um experience of trauma because you're right because two people you know two siblings in a family might experience a divorce what makes each person's experience different but you know if there are two people in say the same family then it would be you know um something that maybe is traumatic has happened to one person than the other and it is true, like everybody is different, so it experiences it differently. Yeah, it's quite, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's actually a whole load of factors. So there's things like the age of when it's happening. So like if you're getting bullied when you're like, I don't know, something like seven, it's probably going to be quite different to if you're getting bullied when you're like 17. Um, not to say once more or less, but I just think that, you know, like if you're quite, quite sensitive and you're going through a very formative time in your life, it's going to have a really big imprint. Um, the type of trauma, obviously, how often the trauma happens. Um, there's also really interesting things around like the resources a, a child or a person has around them. So if a kid, for instance, is getting bullied at school, but doesn't have supportive parents, that is going to be really tough because they're not going to be able to talk about it. They might talk about it to their parents and the parents might just say like, oh, just, you know, pull your socks up and get on with it. So they don't feel held, they don't feel supported. Um, they don't feel safe versus a kid who does have a very strong relationship with their parents. The kid, the parent maybe might listen to the kid, believe that the kid is, is telling the truth, which is also really important, um, and then go and do something about it. So there's a sense of kind of like justice happening. So for a lot of, a lot of the times, like the resources that a person has around them also makes a really big difference. You know, even just really simply, like, are they able to talk about it or are they, are they bottling it up? Yeah. And also just like, you know, previous experience of trauma. So if you're a kid who had, you know, parents divorced when you're like three and at five, you have a car accident at six, you, you know, change schools four times. And then at seven, guinea pig then dies. 
you know, your experience of that kind of guinea pig dying then is going to be different from if none of that other stuff had happened. I guess the other thing I was going to say just in terms of like types of trauma, like a lot of people don't realise that like having your teeth taken out when you're a kid. I remember as a kid, I had so many fucking teeth taken out because um, my jaw was too narrow and I had like braces and there was like lots of stuff around that that I never really understood as being trauma. I didn't ever understood, understand it as my body responding to it in a kind of traumatic way, but it, it you know, it did. Yeah, yeah I had braces and it is... The whole thing around braces is really horrible because you've got this metal invading your mouth and the pain lasts for like weeks and then as soon as you're used to it, they tie it in there. Yeah. yeah. So, so back to that point that kind of like, um, I suppose Liz was making about trauma not actually being this big one-like thing that happens. It's, you know, a really broad spectrum and some of it goes pretty much unnoticed because it's not really identifiable as trauma and it happens over long periods. Yeah, and this is it because I think that again, you know, even though the understanding of trauma I think has changed quite a lot, I think people still look out for the big things. Yeah. And actually miss the small things that can have an impact. Yeah. Keep uh, wanting, I'll keep wanting to say the thing, the ghost in all this, if you like, um, is is attachment theory, which is an, you know, which is another theory. So I hate to sort of throw in another theory here, but you know that basically so that is very the basic of it basis of it is how safe you felt as a, as a very you know as a very young child since you were born and and that's about safety and you know in a way that has that kind of imprinting or that biological element where it goes this is an instinct to want to be safe and if you didn't feel safe as a, as a baby you know, you, there's nothing you can really do about that because it, it, it's just a real biological instinct to want to be safe and survive and then to kind of live and procreate and kind of because you are an animal. So there are degrees of like how safe you felt as a child as well that are just so present from, you know, like birth or pre-birth and it might not even be your trauma. I know you're going to talk about this, but it, it you know, you know, it comes down to this very basic like how safe you feel, it's an animal instinct. So whatever happens because of that animal instinct will have varying degrees of impact on you. Yeah, it's a basic need. Yeah. Um, and that actually connects to what I was saying earlier about kind of resources around the, the, the kid or a person. So yeah, it's a really classic one that if a parent does have a strong attachment to their kid, like a secure bond, that kid's ability to process their trauma and talk about the pro their trauma is going to be very different to a kid that doesn't have that connection to their parents. Um, you mentioned trauma that's not yours. So there's a term for that, which I think you will know in utero trauma. I was going to say generational trauma. Is it the same thing or is it different? Like... It's kind of different and same, helpfully. <laughs> So in, in utero would be if your mother was carrying you when she's pregnant and she experienced like trauma or a stressful time, I suppose the chemicals that or the stress hormones in your body would affect you as a um, growing human inside her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's the also broader kind of cultural intergenerational trauma around racism, around kind of, you know, experiences like Holocaust and how that impacted those generations following the Holocaust. Um, so that it, it might not necessarily be your mother, 
but you you culturally have experienced um, you know a kind of massive um, trauma. And here I talk about my favorite David Grossman book, See Under Love. But that you know it's very much about how um, how that that trauma was transmitted to people um, you know across culture, not by blood. Um, so yeah. And I think we see a lot of that with the kind of um, Black Lives Matter protests and the, and the discourse around um, statues and slavery about how that kind of cultural um, trauma is transmitted. And it makes total sense that if that's what you'd experience from, you know, if you're, I think the other thing is also kind of like immigration is another thing and like people being in war zones. If you've like come from a war zone and you know you're in kind of shell shock yourself and you have kids you're the likelihood of you being able to bond and securely attach to your child is also then going to be affected so quite often there's this like cascading down of a lack of bonding between parent and child because of trauma that came before them so yeah and, and just to kind of like pick up on the in utero thing again just that um just to really underline this i think that i remember coming across this years ago and it really blew my mind because it made sense of so much of what i had experience as a kid I remember as a kid being very um like clingy and very I remember I had like I was very clingy very um had loads of like skin conditions like eczema and, and like some kind of I don't know like it's not very nice but like fungal stuff on my feet and and I think you know you know my mum and dad had this really horrible divorce and stuff but I think it actually came before that so I think when my mum was pregnant with me she was going through quite a lot of violence in her marriage so all of those stress women like Antonio was saying are of course going to get passed on to the baby and so the baby I mean this again really blew my mind and it's it's a bit of a theory but it kind of makes total sense to me that from an evolutionary perspective, the reason that that happens is so that when the baby is born, the baby is in this kind of state of fight or flight already. So it's almost ready to respond to this threat as soon as it's born. So there's a reason for it. Um, you know, kind of the downside is that it can affect how your nervous system functions right from, from you know, right from the get-go. So it's, it's pretty huge. And, you know, what, I think was commonly understood before, and again, I think this is changing now, but I think before people would just think that, you know, babies are affected by their environments when they have an environment, i.e. when they're kind of like in an external environment. What they're now starting to realize is that actually the internal environment of the mother's womb and whatever the mum was going through at the time of pregnancy is the environment, you know, the first environment that the baby experiences. Yeah, so that kind of sets up how children respond. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I when I heard about it from, on the course, it, it kind of blew blew my mind a bit because I'm adopted as from a baby. So my mum went through pregnancy knowing that she couldn't keep me, mm. and she was in a in a really unsafe environment where she couldn't, you know, have look after a child and having to give her child away. Um, so that kind of I hadn't ever thought about that kind of you know how that would have affected me even from you know being a tiny baby yeah what do you all know about like fight flight and freeze as in what you know it's kind of a bit of an obvious question but like what's the function of those responses like isn't it from like evolution it's like a response to eat to react to something like a threat mm -hmm. i only ever knew about fight or flight before i think freeze was something i learned on pfc when we did it mm -hmm. So response to threat, yeah, absolutely. 
all of the above, fight, flight, and freeze. Is it the body's response to try and get you safe, to protect you? Yeah, I mean, again, this is just, I'm always really moved by this. So I remember um, reading this once and it was saying that the, the threat, the response, because people quite often feel a bit ashamed about going into a particular response or, you know, A, we don't have a choice. We don't sit there and just think, oh, which one shall I choose? And, you know, today I'll choose fight. Um, but I think there's just something about um, understanding that the body, and I mean the whole body is in you know, body and mind, is trying to protect us from physical and emotional pain, yeah? So if there's a threat, you know, we may be able to run and therefore like our body mobilizes us by releasing loads of adrenaline to the system. We can get loads of energy really quickly and you know, we kind of can just try to escape from the threat. Same with, uh, so that's fight, uh, flight. Fight is the opposite, you know, standing and kind of like obviously fighting the threat. But even freeze, and, and again, just something to hold on to, a definition of freeze that I really loved was psychological flight when physical flight is impossible. So a child may not have the option to fight or flee. And so what the body does as, is it shuts down, it disconnects from feeling to stop us from feeling. We don't want to feel pain, you know, whether that's a cut on our finger or whether that's like emotional pain. Our, body don't, our bodies don't want us to feel that pain and stay in that pain. So we respond to that by going into one of those three different responses. Which I suppose, I suppose uh, short term is like really handy and kind of protects you and is like, you know, amazing that the body is set out to do that. But long term, that can be, you know, really difficult and really impacts like your life and like how you manage stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing about unprocessed trauma, because if it's not processed, if it's not something we've ever explored or thought about, you know, it's there banging around in the back of our, you know, our kind of psyches or our brains, whatever you want to call it, um, and affecting us in ways that we don't even really realize. Okay. So we're going to be quite likely to respond to current events from a very, you know, traumatic kind of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of responding to like threats in the environment as if it, it was the original threat that was caused from that original trauma. And then you've got like, you know, those really like knock on emotions that you get because you responded in one way to trauma and you would imagine or society tells you that you should be, you know, experiencing it in a different way, you know, like freezing instead of fighting. And it's a why didn't you fight, you know, mm -hmm. and, and those, ex yeah, having those emotions that come up from from that experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's actually, it's, you know, it's interesting talking about it because weaving together our own experiences and the messages that we're fed from society that tell us to be a certain way. You know, it's all kind of really, really linked. Okay, are you ready for some biology? Hell yes. Always. <laughs> Always. It's a beautiful thing. Um, okay, so just so you know, so we have three, we actually have three different nervous systems, okay? So one of them we're not really going to be talking about, but I'll mention it anyway. So we have the autonomic nervous system. So that's the one that's in, involved in, you know, stuff we do automatically, we don't think about. So um, breath, breathing, you know, digestion, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, regulating body temperature and, and things like that. So then you have the two different type, the other kind of uh, nervous systems which are really relevant to trauma. So you have the sympathetic nervous system, 
And I did look into why it's called that because people are always just like, oh, but that means it's really kind. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. There's a reason. Oh, I can't remember now, but I'll try and put it in the kind of notes of this. There is some kind of root to that. But anyway, there's the sympathetic nervous system and that's the one that's involved with like activity. So if you think about if we need to do something, if we need to like get up and go somewhere, if we need to like, um, I don't know, like clean the house or whatever, like anything which is involved with some kind of activity is the sympathetic nervous system. Okay. The hormones, so there's hormones attached to, to both of the nervous systems I'm going to talk about. The hormones that are attached are um, adrenaline and cortisol, the stress hormones. Yeah. And in and of themselves, they're not bad. And think back to you said it like short term, great. We're, we're kind of like, you know, we've evolved to have these responses, but long term, we can't sustain them. So if we have, if something kind of, um, really awful happened to us or in a car crash, we might go into the sympathetic nervous system or the sympathetic nervous system might be the one that responds where we just suddenly have lots of kind of like energy and drive to get the fuck out of the car because it's going to blow up. But, you know, that's, that's something, and you, you know, you kind of hear uh, stories of people like in, in car crashes or whatever, like feeling like they've got superhuman strength and they can kind of like rip the door open and just like be in tunnel vision and, you know, everything is just like super, super, super clear and they just get out and, and you know, they're safe from the harm, from the threat. Um, and then you have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite. So in kind of daily life, the parasympathetic one is the, the kind of um, resting nervous system. It's the one that we go into when we sleep or when we've had a meal and we want to just like lie down and take it easy and digest our foods or we you know sometimes if you have like a massage or do something like I don't know kind of relaxing yoga or something that's the parasympathetic nervous system it's a very kind of restful nourishing nervous system and we need both you know we need both you know daily life kind of requires both of those things um anyone know what the hormones attached to the parasympathetic nervous system are if I tell you that the Fight or flight is to do with the sympathetic nervous system. Freeze is to do with the parasympathetic. Is it dopamine or something like that? No, that's wrong. Dopamine is the kind of drugs and gambling one. <laughs> drugs, <laughs> drugs, gambling, and like Facebook likes. <laughs> Keep going with the examples. So again, I was just used the same example. So the car crash run. Two people in a car crash. <clears throat> one person describes it as like right you know this thing just happened so fast I knew what I had to do I just ripped the car door open I pulled my body out and just like pulled her to safety and you know whatever um and then you have the, par the the parasympathetic one which is the freeze response and so the person who experiences the crash as a freeze response describes it as being like slow motion and kind of dreamy and um you know, it's like everything kind of, you know, had a bit of an out-of-body experience, could see everything happening really, really slowly and then just, you know, passed out. That's the freeze response. And Liz, do you know it? I do, but it's make it, you make it sound like the ketamine response. Well, yeah, I mean... It's not you know, far off it, opioids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's the body's natural kind of painkillers, the opioids. So again, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Like our bodies have these incredible abilities that if we have a car crash and our legs hanging off by... A ligament you know our bodies don't want us to experience that kind of physical that physical pain or that psychological pain of noticing that so so can kind of go into the parasympathetic response which is to kind of shut down it, i mean i know that, that that people actually do you know 
um, take every drug they can lay their hands on, but also um, it, 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 it also corresponds with what drugs, drug of choices people have. So will be there, you know, as I say, you know, people will tend to kind of use multiple drugs, but there tends to be a kind of preference towards sort of um, uh, slower kind of opioid drugs or more um, kind of adrenaline inducing um, stimulant drugs. Can you say why? Well, I mean, uh, to me, it, 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 the, the link is that, that people are self-medicating trauma. So they're, they're kind of self-medicate um, in relation to their their dominant, it's probably not the right word, but their dominant nervous system kind of response. Uh, you know, the drugs you take aren't your choice. It's not a drug of choice. It's There's no choice in it. It's your body going, yes, I want opiates, or I'm actually going to kind of manage trauma by, you know, taking a, a lot of cocaine, yeah. um, which is doing something very, very different. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you mean cocaine, make, you know, when you describe that response to a car accident, that is kind of like, you know, taking a load of coke and thinking you're a super woman and you can, mm -hmm. you know, do anything and kind of, you're spent, you know, your kind of synapses are kind of firing uh, at a rate of whatever, you know, they, they yeah, I mean, it's the, I think it's the relationship to your nervous system and, and trauma and drugs, the, the interplay between those three things. Should be called a drug of need rather than a drug of choice. Absolutely, yeah. Go on. What about what about alcohol? Is that a, like a depressant? So you get the same kind of like chilled out. I want to go to sleep. Kick from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mind learning this because it really, really did because it changed my kind of um, perception of kind of like you know addiction that it's the drugs to actually that you know there's a lot more to it it's kind of coming from trauma responses and to kind of understand, you know, uh, why you took such drugs. It wasn't just because you picked that one up necessarily, you liked it, whatever. It's actually, you know, um, completely a trauma response. Um, and, you know, in some way, I can't find another word for healthy because it isn't the word I want to use, but I feel like it's a really healthy kind of thing to sort of understand. It kind of breaks down a lot of the, the, the stigma around it but I can't think of a different word for helping. Well, one of the foundation for change kind of, um, you know, beliefs is, uh, you know, we're written down in, in our kind of constitution, in, if you like, not the constitution, but, you know, one of our beliefs is that, that uh, you know, uh, using drugs is a rational response to trauma and, you know, meaning that it, it, there's a logic to it, not that it's the best thing in the world to do, but that, that there's, there you follow the logic and then you follow the logic backwards and you'll find trauma. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think it is really fundamental to understand because one of the things that people are trying to do is feeding the nervous system. So if you're in a state of fight or flight, you're in this kind of, you know, lots of adrenaline, very kind of hyper-stimulated, you're very hyper-vigilant, you're looking out for a lot of threat. You're going to gravitate, you're not going to gravitate to the drugs that actually slow you down because that might mean that you're not going to be able to respond to the threat. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So I think like people actually are feeding a nervous system, A, that, you know, they're kind of in a way imprinted by, and B, that's really familiar. So you, so you might gravitate to things like cocaine or speed, um, and then even kind of like non, you know, psychoactive drugs, but taking lots of 
drinking loads of caffeine and smoking loads of fags and you know having lots of sugar and all that stuff like that is also feeding knowing glance from Bex that's also feeding a very kind of like hypervigilant nervous system the opposite can happen where someone is also feeding you know they don't want to feel and and actually that this disconnected state that they experienced when maybe they were younger is something that they want to perpetuate through something like heroin for instance yeah this is being really kind of oversimplistic so this is kind of saying it's a bit either or you also get something in trauma that i think is really important to say where people flip between the different the two nervous systems yeah so it's not like you're just in fight or flight or you're just in freeze people can alternate between them so you get people who just say like you know uppers and downers or um people who will kind of flip between the states and that's also just really really common it's been described as kind of like driving with the handbrake on um driving trying to drive with exactly like foot down on the accelerator and on the pedal at the same time all righty so um i guess you know this stuff is really relevant so again just kind of um thinking about nervous systems and also thinking about our own you know our own kind of habits and the things that we tend to do um that might actually we might think that they're helping us but they maybe might just actually be feeding a response without us ever kind of really realizing it um and i guess one of the things that I think is really important for all of us to get a sense of is what is your default nervous system? Yeah. Do you tend to be someone who's kind of like quite bitey and flighty and kind of like stimulated? And if so, how much of your life, how, how many parts of your life do you have where you are able to slow down and kind of recharge? So we need both. Yeah. And if you're someone who's just very like disassociated, very disconnected and very much in that kind of freeze response all the time, it's really useful to get into your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, so we you know we, we really need both. Um, and I guess that's gonna make more sense when I do this next little bit. So I wanted to talk about a model. So this is actually a model that was put together by this, this really interesting GP who works down the road from us in Shoreditch called Dr. Jonathan Tomlinson. Um, and he's got this really incredible blog and we will post a link to his blog in the, the notes to this podcast. Um, but he's put together this model of healing trauma that he uses with his patients. Um, and it comes from this approach um, in, I guess, in psychology called salutogenesis. And I love that word. So salutogenesis, if you break it down, salute, and if you think about salute and salute, for people who know like Latin languages, uh, means health. And genesis means coming from, so kind of or the origins of. So this is a particular model which is very much about the origins of health, like the things that we can do to, to kind of, you know, um, focus on our health and well-being. I won't kind of go into too much of the background, but I wanted to just say that he, and again, this is where the visual of the handout is useful, but, you know, you could also just look down at your hand because he uses a hand for this model, okay? So there's six different parts. You've got the five, four fingers, the thumb, and also the wrist. So I'm going to just talk through those different bits and we can either like take it apart as we go through it or we can just have a bit of chat afterwards. Um, and one of the things he's saying, so this is, you know, it's a, it's a framework with six different parts. And what he's saying in this model is that it's important to try to have a good balance of all of those things. Because if, you know, three of them are missing, those remaining three need to be really damn strong to be able to sustain you. Um, so... The little finger, he says, is the mind. And this bit refers to people's feelings that we have, our emotions, memories, and thoughts. 
This is where things like shame and anger come in, depression, fear, grief, very um, relevant. Confusion, hope, despair, so all of that kind of stuff. And so taking care of your mind depends on how kind of overwhelming or, or numbed your feelings are, okay? And generally, I mean, not always, but generally like in this kind of area, he, you know, he talks about therapy or some kind of counseling or something that supports your well-being, yeah? I guess also like the courses that we run where people come and they're able to talk about this stuff with other people, um, you know, it's therapeutic as a byproduct, but it's not necessarily therapy, but that's kind of taking care of the mind. The second one, the ring finger is your body. Um, and so this is kind of taking care of your body in whatever way suits you. So it's not just going to the gym. It really pisses me off when people like, you know, refer people to the gym to, you know, inhabit their bodies. Um, Cause there's obviously more that you can do to be physical than the bloody gym. So for some people, this might be walking, for some people it might be like yoga, for some people it might be like the act of making something like sewing or painting or gardening or dancing or baking bread or whatever. So all of these things come under this category, yeah? And what he's saying in this, this particular character, category is that a lot of people who've experienced trauma often have a very difficult relationship with their bodies. And so if you can start to build a healthier relationship through with your body through physical activities, um, you know, what you're aiming for is that, you know, your body, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a joyful thing to inhabit rather than something that feels shameful or, you know, dreadful. And one of the things I always say on the course when I do this day is that, you know, to, to feeling is our birthright, emotions are our birthright. So if we go through something which disconnects us from that, you know, we're losing out on something that, that is ours to have just by virtue of being alive. The third finger, middle finger, um, is your biology. And so what he's talking about here is everything that you consume. So like food, drink, supplements, medication, alcohol, drugs, um, so this relates to what we were saying before about like, if you're somebody with a very stimulated nervous system and you tend to gravitate towards things which keep you stimulated, um, you know, you might be, I remember working with somebody ages ago and she was talking about how she could never sleep. And I asked her about coffee and how much coffee she drank. And she was just like, oh, I have like, you know, about 12 cups of coffee a day. <laughs> and having kind of like joined the dots in terms of like you know obviously people build a tolerance to it but it can still you know this builds up and anyone has, has anyone ever had caffeine withdrawals yes it's horrible <laughs> so bad <laughs> so you know like these we, we start to rely on these little kind of like shots of fuel like i don't know cigarettes and coffee and things like that which you know i'm fine I'm not kind of like knocking them but making sure that, you know, you're doing those things in balance and not to the effect that it's affecting your ability to go into parasympathetic. And then the next one, the first finger, are human relationships. And Dr. JT asked this question that I think is really powerful where he's, he asks his patients, he says, are the people in your life who know you well, who you love and you trust and who love and trust you back? I think he writes in his blog that he's just really shocked at the number of people who say, yeah, you. So we need people, we need social connections. Um, we need people that, you know, nurture us rather than kind of put us down. Um, 
I think it's also relevant as well, particularly in terms of like this pandemic and loneliness and being really disconnected from others, like that particular finger, the, the kind of human relationships thing, I think for a lot of people is the thing that's that's really gone or, or the most affected. Yeah, definitely. I, I think like at this moment of time, um, you know, it, kind of being kind of like animals that we are and the needs that we kind of like have um not having even if you're kind of like very solitary and like not really one for like meeting up with lots of friends or anything but it, yeah you do feel that disconnect and it is kind of yeah a bit of a gap mm -hmm. so then continuing so we have the thumb so the thumb he calls it social security which always makes me think of the dss but he's talking here about security of housing and security of finance and security of employment, safe, but also things like safety from violence, safety from intimidation, safety from all forms of abuse. And the reason he has that as the thumb is because he says the tip of the thumb can touch all of the other fingers. So if you are somewhere where you feel um, you're safe from violence and you're safe from intimidation, you're more, you know, you're more able to rest like at a really basic level. Yeah, you're more able to take care of, you know, human relationships and think about people around you. You're more able to think about um, paying attention to like your food or whatever, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but also like with finance, you know, the unfortunate thing about the world as it is today is that if we do have money, it does make some of the other stuff easier. So if we want therapy, you know, even if it's low cost therapy, it makes something like that easy to access because we've got some money for it. Um, and then the last bit, he talks about, so this is the wrist, and he talks about this as crisis management. So he's saying that, you know, when things get really bad, particularly if we've got a history of um, experiencing crises before, um, try to, you know, make a bit of a crisis management plan. So just have some kind of note where it might include people to speak to or places to go to or specific things to do, particularly if you've got things which have worked in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I kind of I actually really like that just as having some kind of like anchor, because I think that when we do start to lose it um, for whatever reason, I think it can be really, you know, literally feeling like you're drifting and um, ungrounded so I think it's really helpful to have some kind of like rescue pack when when uh, at those kind of times it's really difficult with that one as well during covid because my big one was like um you know just getting out and going for a walk but not like on the streets of London like like getting out of London and whether it be just getting on like southwest trains and getting off at Guildford or something like that and so kind of you know being on in, in lockdown you can't really do those things which um really help you just yeah ma manage your bits if you know what I mean mm. I guess it's useful to think about like I think that's a good point I think it's I think to recognise what you don't have that you would normally go to during COVID, like recognising that you don't have those things, and I guess maybe trying to think about alternatives, which are not going to be the same, but it's something. Yeah, me and Tonya went for um, like a walk last week like up on the common and you know actually you come back and, and you feel better for it it's not your usual you know five mile hike in in Devon or wherever it's um you know actually it's nice to be able to kind of yeah just try and kind of do something but in this 
the same manner, but you know, yeah, up in the comments. Sorry, I'm waffling. <laughs> no, 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 it's true. Yeah. I think the only thing for me, like, I mean, I'm, I don't do crazy walks like you do, but I like obviously, you know, getting out and getting into nature. And don't really have that opportunity, but the thing that I always really connect to, like when take out the dogs for a walk, I really love the sky when I go to a park. So Shoreditch Park is around there, it's a shit park. I mean, it's, but it's like, it's open. And the thing that I think always makes me feel, um, I don't know, it kind of, it does, it, it touches something in me or it kind of, um, what's the word, like, something that I need is just a sense of openness and space. And, and that's the only place around here that I get to see the sky in that way. So what do you think about that as a model? I think it makes sense, but I think if you look at it, um, like with COVID, there's a lot of stuff on there that's like the people thing. Which one was that? I can't remember what thing it was. Um, first finger, yeah, human relationships. Yeah, I think it took a long time for everyone to adjust to Zoom. And even then it's not the same, is it? And you have these different emotions around people. Um, when you are meeting up with them, it's like you can't behave in the same way. You can't give them a hug. You can't get close to them. They can only be a certain amount of you. It does change, especially the last year or so. Mm. It's useful in that it places, you know, healing from trauma in on the whole very ordinary categories. You know, it, 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 all of those things are achievable or attainable under normal circumstances. And we're talking about how, how, um, how that's been impacted by COVID, lots of these things, but you know, under normal circumstances, all of those areas are, are achievable by people. Mm. Uh, as you say, I mean, the kind of social security element, the money element does, does kind of, um, and, you know, can impair people's ability to, to kind of access all those areas of, of, of connection or help. But mm-hmm. as you're talking, I was just thinking about, you know, like often in recovery, that there will be discussion around getting a hobby, which is awful, isn't it? Because it reminds me of, you know, like being at school and people going, what are your hobbies? Um, I didn't really have any hobbies, but you know, like something like a hobby connects to people, it often connects to your body. It connect, you know, how important sort of all that, that social well-being is for us and how how that being taken away of course really impacts you know our ability to to, to sort of well-being in covid mm. so, yeah there's there's something about the ordinariness ordinariness of all those different areas identified on that hand but those are all impacted as well by by covid at the moment so it's a bit of a bit a sweet model right now mm. i mean it's nice that it, it it doesn't just go go to a therapist you know if you've got trauma go and speak to somebody it actually recognizes the importance of the body and physical physical activity and connection and all those other things you know there is something very um um appropriate into how how it recognizes how you know how trauma manifests itself in people yeah and i guess kind of carrying on from that i think there's something about the kind of the practicality of it it's quite practical it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you're in a bad state, the last thing you want to be is... I mean, it's the classic kind of, you know, you're feeling depressed. Somebody says, why don't you go out for a walk? You know, actually, it's a, it's a thing that really, really works. Um, but it's a thing you don't want to do. You know, it's like how how we are our own worst enemies um, during times of stress. 
And I know I'm going to sit here and not go out for a walk. I'm going to, um, you know, sit here and think about it, which is probably the worst <laughs> thing about all you can do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, it does recognise um, that the solutions are at hand. For our, oh, no pun intended. The solutions are at hand. Huh. There we go. And that's, that's the crisis plan bit, isn't it? Because I think before, like, I, I didn't really used to... Um, I certainly talk about the kind of the five fingers and actually now like when I do this I actually very specifically also talk about the, the, the wrist bit the crisis plan because think about like how many meetings we've had and like quite often people just kind of say that like oh I'm not very sociable and but I had this meeting with with a friend and it was just really amazing like we know afterwards that doing x y or z has been really fucking great for us but it might not be the thing that comes to mind initially. So if there is something that you go to that just like, I don't know, have it written up in your house or have it in notes on your phone or something, that's just a bit of a reminder of like, listen, this always really helps <laughs> when you do this. And I suppose what happens is people adapt, you know, what are maladaptive crisis plans. Yeah, my crisis plan was take heroin. It, you know, it was remarkably effective. And um, I take it with people as well. So there you go, connection drugs the lot really worked uh, but it you know on the long run not a brilliant response so um and also I did things so um you know it's quite creative so you know in lots of ways it 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 was a solution that wasn't the best solution um so we will fall back on patterns of maladaptive kind of yeah crisis responses I guess okay so I mean that's the content of the podcast, I guess, you know, two things to take away, I hope, is, you know, one, this, this model of the hand and thinking about how you, you know, where you get those different needs met in your life. Um, and the second thing is, you know, I would say really try to understand or question this nervous system thing, like how, how many um, parts of your life do you have which give you a chance to just literally be in your nervous system, in your parasympathetic? You're going to go for a run now, Heather? Possibly not today. It's probably like warm outside and it's not raining, so there's probably going to be loads of people. <laughs> I should have just gone really, really early in the morning. Tomorrow morning now, yes. I'm going to have a nap. <laughs> no, I can't. I'd love to, but I can't. Um, Alrighty. Well, listen, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening to this and do have a look at the handout and... Yeah, we will see you next time. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome. Cheers, Bob. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.